Human Vortex Training and Menachem Brody present the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, where we talk strength training, physiology, psychology, tech, and much more to help you get fitter, faster, and stronger in and out of your sport, giving you expert insights, talking with other leading experts. And now, your host, world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. This week, it's episode 4777. We're going to talk about what exactly core training for cyclists and triathletes should be and why it's so prevalent that cyclists, triathletes, and their coaches are leaving so much on the table. So make sure you have a comfortable seat, grab your iced coffee, and get ready to dive into core training, what is real core training for cyclists and triathletes, on this week's Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. Some of you may be sitting there and wondering why exactly are we dedicating a whole episode, or at least this one episode to date, about core training for cyclists and triathletes. Pretty much, it really revolves around the fact that a lot of what cyclists and triathletes are doing and calling core training uh, is actually just proliferating bad movement patterns, and it's just really cool to look at, or is quote-unquote stability training, getting on a bozu ball, or on something that's unstable, and going through stuff. Please, please don't do this to your athletes. There are far better ways for us to develop stability and core strength than planks and side planks and crunches and variations of planks and side planks and crunches. Uh, and yes, we are going to talk about three things that are planks and crunches, but as you're going to hear, they are very specific. There's a reason for them to be there, and they tie together much more than the core as what most people think about being the stomach and the sides. There's far more to this than anything else. Now, of recently, we just wrapped up the 60-day home bodyweight strength training for cyclists program. The results were fantastic. It was even better than the several athletes that I had go through uh, the inspiration for this program, which was essentially an eight-week bodyweight-based training program because they were either traveling Europe racing or they had a high stress time at work or whatever it may have been. It was just kind of looking through, you know, as I do each year, what are common trends that have gone on? How can we use this to help more people and develop a program? And oh, there's a roughly eight to 10 weeks of, you know, so we'll call it a 60 day home body weight program. And we have one we're running right now for triathletes. So I'll update you later on. So if you subscribe to the podcast here, as well as give us a five-star review. You'll be able to hear about this later on, even if you give us a four-star review. Hopefully you find it good enough that it's a five-star review. Um, You'll find later on that the triathletes will have even better results than the cyclists. And the reason is what we're going to cover here today. A lot of core training that is out there that's proliferated in the magazines and and popular uh, fitness culture is based around doing things that the athlete quote-unquote feels as core. And these are planks forever until the cows come home, side planks, usually with the feet stacked. And we'll talk why uh, that is a mistake and how you can get more out of your side planks as well as doing some type of crunches, usually for cyclists and triathletes is bicycle crunches and flutters and leg ups like V-ups and things of that nature. Now, there's a number of things within core that we have to take into consideration. And the first one is, please, for the love of your athletes and their development, get them off of the damn unstable surfaces. Get them off the bozu ball, get them off the pita pads, get them to be able to balance first 
on solid ground and be able to interact with the ground through the use of the bottom of their foot and good posture and breathing. And then maybe we can talk about having them practice it with their eyes closed. And once they get that down, then we would consider maybe going to unstable surface like an Indo board or a pita pad or a bozu ball. Yes, each of these tools will be used in small amounts here and there, depending on what the athlete needs. If you follow me on Instagram, you saw that one of the professional basketball players I was working with, he, we had him on the narrow wobble board. There was a reason for that. We were looking for specific things in his return to play from the, the offseason to the season, but we only did that for about three sessions, and then we moved on back to solid core training. And core training, just to clear up the misconception here, core is not just the transverse abdominis, the muscle that wraps around from the left side of your spine and your midsection all the way to the right side of the spine and connects to the ribs and to the pelvis. That's the transverse abdominis. There's the internal oblique, which runs from uh, the front of the rib cage to the back, so all the way down and around. And then you have the external oblique, which goes from uh, the back of the ribs, where they are open, into the front. So those are the ones you often see the models, you know, they have that little cut on the side. And then you also have the rectus abdominis, also known as the six pack muscle, but that's not it for core. This is what many people think of as core because that's what the mass media has put out. They've put out crunches and sit-ups and 50 different types of crunches and four different types of planks and burpees and all this other stuff. We want to first and foremost, educate our athletes that the core is not just that. The core also includes the quadratus lumborum, which are the two muscles on either side of your lower back, either side of the spine, which help if they fire individually, they flex us to one side. If they flex together or they, they fire together, they extend the back, as well as the erector spinae. These are long muscles that run along the spine uh, from the bottom of the spine to the top. There's two different segments of them, the upper and lower, two different innervations as well as a plethora of other different muscles, including the hip flexors. And these are two different muscles. So if you're still calling them the iliopsoas, you're about 25 years behind the times. There was a study that was done back in the 1970s or 1980s, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that actually showed that the psoas and the iliacus have two different innervations. They are not the same muscle. They just happen to tie in on top of one another. The iliacus runs from the inside of the pelvis down to the uh, thigh bone, the femur, and then the psoas runs from the lower back, the front ver uh, part of the vertebrae and the lumbar spine all the way down to, and it inserts on top of or just right next to the same spot as the iliacus does there on the thigh bone. Now, the thing that a lot of people uh, fail to realize about this is that that's still not it for the core. Let's keep going and talk about what else there is in the core. Well, we've talked about the midsection. We've talked about the hip flexors, your glutes, of which there are three. You have the glute max, the glute maximus, the big outer muscle, the glute medius, which runs just underneath your belt line. And then you have the glute minimus, which is very tiny, probably the size of roughly your ring finger and pinky finger put together. It also helps in side flexion. It keeps the hip from dropping from one side to the other. And then on top of that, you have the pelvic floor, of which there are a number, uh, eight, and they're all small muscles like the gemellus. You have the obturator externus, the obturator internus, and a bunch of other ones. 
But wait, there's more. Your quads also tie into your pelvis. Granted, they go from your pelvis and they insert down onto the patellar tendon. Uh, that is still considered a core muscle because it's helping to stabilize the pelvis as you're going through motion. That's not it. We also have the sartorius. Do you get the idea here? All of the muscles that run between your knees, your neck, and your elbows are all your core muscles your lats, your pecs, sternocleidomastoid, the, there's so many more that I can go through. And I'm not listing these muscles to impress you, but to impress upon you as a coach, as an athlete who's here to learn more, that if you are talking about core and you're only thinking about your stomach muscles, you're so far out of the loop and you're leaving so much of your own performance gains out on the table because you're not training the true core. One of the best ways that I can help this message hit home is the 60-day home body weight training program that we had here, uh, strength training for cyclists, 60-day home body weight, no weights at all, teaching them how to brace their midsection, create proximal stiffness to get distal motion. And that's just one example. Many of you are going to have your athletes or you yourself are out there on bozu balls, on balance boards, and as you heard me wax poetic before, you really need to get off of those damn things because they are costing you training time, which would allow you to actually see better results. So let's get into what exactly we're looking for to train with our core training and how we start. The first, as with anything that we look for our training, is going to begin with our warm-up. When we go through our dynamic warm-up, the first exercise we're going to do is going to be a breathing exercise. For example, or as is most relevant for many cyclists and triathletes, the psoas muscle runs through the diaphragm. And in fact, having great posture as well as good breathing patterns, diaphragmatic breathing patterns, where you're getting full 360 degree expansion of the ribs, the stomach, the lower back, everything is moving together, is going to allow you to relax the hip flexors. One of the major issues that we have and one of the causes of back pain for many cyclists tends to be well, people at least accuse the hip flexor, the psoas, of being the sole proprietor of that type of pain. But in fact, there are a number of other considerations that are often missed or discounted because, no, it's just my hip flexor. That's what the magazines are telling me. Stretch your hip flexors. Why do I know this? I made that mistake myself early on in my coaching career and had people stretching and doing McGill crunches or McGill curl-ups, uh, as you'll hear in a little bit to try and address this, but I was missing the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that hip flexor is a small player in a much bigger game. Of course, of course, the answer is going to be that it depends. However, when it comes to lower back pain on the bike, the first thing we need to look at is the bike fit as well as the individual's stability. When we talk about stability, this doesn't mean are they able to keep their bike riding in a straight line, which many people can't if they're going slower than five miles an hour. Kind of fun to watch. Try it. Try and ride on a white line on a safe road for longer than three and a half minutes going slower than five miles an hour, and you'll find how much you squiggle side to side. Now, the thing is, as you look at the hip flexor, uh, it's one piece of the puzzle. We also have the transverse abdominis, the glutes, in particular the glute med min complex, as well as the hamstrings, the quadriceps, the latissimus dorsi, the big lats on your back, as well as your chest, your pec major, pec minor, which can cause the psoas to be overactive because these other muscles are shortened, not firing properly, and not able to support you on the bike. 
a number of different considerations that we would have to take would be looking at the rider as they're standing, looking at different postures and positions, asking them to hold a position to see how stable they are or are not. For those of you who have gone through the Strength Training for Cyclists certification, you'll be familiar with the hands behind head posture and what we're looking for out of that assessment. This is something that is absolutely pivotal and yet most people skip. The other option we can do is a single leg hip lift with the knee to chest. What we're doing is we're taking the hip flexor out, specifically the psoas, and not allowing it to stabilize by staying tight. We do this by pulling the knee back to the chest and allowing the athlete to go through and try and do a glute dominant movement, which many times for cyclists and triathletes is going to be hamstring dominant. Now the problem with this is, is that when you are hamstring dominant, this can actually pull the hip socket out of place and lead to hip pain and also a, a dysfunction and a degeneration of that joint if you're working in a closed position for high repetitions as we are in cycling and triathlon. As the famous physiotherapist Janda called it, it's a crossed syndrome where you're not getting your hamstrings to work, so instead on the opposite side of the joint you have the hip flexors pulling. What this does is it pulls the ball and socket joint forward and this creates an environment where the, the head of the femur essentially, the ball and socket is pulled out of place so it's not able to properly rotate. Well over time there can be bone growth called a cam impingement or a pincer impingement which is actually on the, the femur itself or on the front of the pelvis socket which creates bone growth because it's not sitting in the proper place. When this happens, there's going to be what's called micro-movements, which can create small micro-traumas in the back that build up over time and eventually lead to tissue failure. Now, I know I went down a, a rabbit hole here, but the whole idea of me explaining this after listing all of those muscles is to get you to understand and think outside the box about what core training is, what it does, and how it's going to help your athlete or you yourself improve your performance and ride, run, or swim fitter, faster, and stronger. The number one thing to take away from this, the core is not going to be a magic solve-all. It has to come with postures, positions, and the ability of the muscles to be in great joint positions which will allow the muscles to do the jobs that they're intended to. You can have a fantastic core, but if you're not working on moving properly on the bike or you don't have a good bike fit, that's going to mean that you can still have these movements develop crossed syndrome over time, as it's labeled, as well as create an environment for other types of injuries. However, many athletes and coaches treat core training as a magic solve-all be-all. Well, certainly having good posture, good coordination of the midsection, and the ability to produce tension at the spine and locking the ribcage and pelvis together is a great start. However, you can have the most advanced cannon in the world, but if you try and fire it from a canoe, it's going to cause no damage and in fact will probably destroy you. You can try it if you want, but I'm pretty sure someone did at some point. You can't fire a cannon from canoe. So what we're looking at here for true core training and what we're going to get into now is how to tie together your athlete's training to allow them to see true performance by developing what should be their core. Now the core is going to work again with all of the muscles between the neck, the elbows, and the knees. This means that your right shoulder is tied to the left hip, the right elbow to the left knee, and vice versa. Think about how you walk. When your left foot is forward, or your left leg, your right arm is forward, countering that movement, allowing you to have some type of force that is being transferred across the body. You're using momentum to help you move forward. 
when we go to core training for cyclists and triathletes, again, many just hop onto an unstable surface or hold planks forever, but they never learn the co-coordination necessary to produce proximal stiffness or stiffness about the spine to allow for movement further away. Let's take a look into this and figure out what it is your athletes really need and how you can easily program it in. Starting off with core training, the first thing that we want to do is assess the athlete's postures and positions. Now I'm not going to go into this here, but we're just going to focus in on one movement that we can do, which is going to be the overhead dowel squat. Now I go into great detail with this in the Strength Training for Cyclists certification course, which opens in the spring and fall for enrollment, as well as my Strength Training for Cyclists and Strength Training for Triathlon Success courses on Training Peaks University. Now for today, we're going to look at the overhead dowel squat where the athlete is holding a empty bar. Ideally, it should just be a wooden dowel with no weight. So doing this with a barbell is not going to help you. It's just going to make it worse and possibly even injure athlete. If you don't have a wooden stick or a PVC pipe, you can simply take a dish towel, roll it up and have the athlete pull that towel taut as they go through the squatting motion. This is going to be something that is looking at core stability. And this surprises a lot of coaches because they're looking at stability as, well, I want to see their plank or I want to see them uh, balance on a bozu ball. Well, that doesn't really have an, a true representation of what's going on for core stability. When we talk about stability, and we talked about this on a previous podcast here on the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete, we want to look at how the joints are able to stabilize as compared to their neighbors and other joints in the body as an athlete goes through the movement. That is literally stability. When we talk about strength training for the core or core training, what we're talking about is the ability to remain stable throughout the entire spine to allow movement to occur at the shoulders, the hips, the elbows, the knees, the feet, and the hands. When you're looking at the overhead dowel or towel squat, what we want to see is that the athlete is able to maintain a nice stable spine and that the athlete is able to go through an appropriate range of motion without lifting the heels or toes off the floor, the knees diving in or out, the elbows bending, or any other kind of odd outside of the norm expected movements to happen. If you don't know what this looks like, again, those courses have examples of good and bad different movement patterns for these. It will allow you to be able to understand a lot more what we're talking about here. Now, the second test we're going to do is going to be a single leg hip lift. The place that most coaches let their athletes go, which is actually very important, is the holding of the opposite side knee to the chest with the hands behind the knee. The behind the knee is very important for two reasons. Number one is we want to make sure not to put excess stress onto the joint space of the knee. And even more important than that, well, or just as important, we want to make sure that the athlete is able to actually pull and get that length through the hamstring as the opposite hip is working. This is extremely important for both sports of cycling and triathlon, but I put a little bit more weight on this when we look at triathletes as they do need to carry some hamstring tension as one foot is on the ground and the other foot is through the carry-through phase of the running. As your athlete goes through these movements, we're looking for a straight line from the knee to the hip to the shoulder of the same side, and the athlete not allowing any rotation to occur as they come up through the range of motion, and the athlete's ability to push from the glutes. Most of your cyclists and triathletes are not going to be able to do this properly as they're going to be hamstring dominant. They'll roll their hip or they are going to dip and bob and weave from side to side with their hips as they try and struggle to come up through the ground. Others will kind of lift their foot and slam it into the ground in an effort to use momentum to help them. 
and yet others will not be able to execute the movement at all. This is a sign that your athlete's core sucks. Yeah, that's kind of mean, but it is what it is. Again, your core is not just planking, is not just crunches or bicycle crunches or whatever type of crunch motion you want to look at. We're talking about the ability to maintain a nice solid spine while getting motion from the other muscles around it. Let's say you're a mean coach and you decide that you're going to tell your athlete, hey, you know what? Your core sucks. Most athletes' immediate response is going to be, no, it doesn't. I can plank for 15, 17, 19, 28 minutes. That is not core strength. And we need to educate our athletes that that is not what we're looking for. So we have our assessments. We have the overhead dowel squat. We overhead towel squat as an alternative if you don't have a dowel. And we have the single leg hip lift. Where do we go from here now that we see the athlete is not able to fire the glutes or they're not able to maintain a nice solid trunk as they go through that range of motion? Well, the first thing we're going to look at is their ability to do a side plank with the top leg forward. The side plank with the top leg forward is a fantastic both assessment and exercise all in one. Remember earlier we talked about how the right arm and left leg are going to work together in gait or walking? The same thing is going to happen when you go through and build core stability, true core strength. The adductor or inner thigh muscles of one side need to fire in appropriate amounts and alongside the midsection, the transverse abdominis, the obliques on the opposite side, as well as the glute med min complex and the latissimus dorsi on the opposite side. When we do the side planks, these are often taught incorrectly, as many people think about having their feet stacked. In fact, this was an artist's rendition mistake in that they saw a picture, tried to draw it from memory, or drew it as best as they could, and by the time it was caught by the publisher that it was incorrect, it was already a million copies in or a million dollars in at some point where the investment to take back all those copies that had been printed was far going to outweigh the benefit of fixing the exercise. Unfortunately, this has led to a proliferation of how not to do the plank, becoming how to do the plank. Try it for yourself. Let's go down to the ground. Let's put your elbow on the ground. Let's take your top foot forward, your bottom leg back, and make sure both knees are straight. Push yourself off the ground. Tuck your chin back so that you're in a straight line from your ear to your shoulder to your hip to your back knee to your back ankle. That back leg is the one that we want to have straight. Now, as you start to shake, bob, and weave, make sure you're not pushing your hips back, rotating them forward or backwards, and you're also not creating undue stress in the shoulder. How long can you hold the side plank for in this fashion? When we look at the research, we should be able to hold at least 60 seconds as a go-to or minimum for our athletes to show that they have bilateral stability enough to resist torsion in the side plank position. However, this is going to be only relevant in the side plank position. And in fact, we need to continue to build 360 degree resilience, which means that we need to look at a few other movements and positions to allow our athletes to progress. The next exercise that we would look at would be the bird dog, which is also often butchered, incredibly so. The bird dog, you often see people just bringing their opposite elbow to the opposite knee, rounding their back to get that motion, and then just pushing them through. And you watch their back, and they go through flexion and extension. While this may be appropriate for some sports or for some athletes because of their unique needs, for the vast majority of us as coaches and athletes, this is not going to build trunk stability or core strength. 
In fact, doing them in this fashion is going to lead you to more of an injury as opposed to a resilience of injury because you're putting the spine through flexion and extension. The proper way to do this is we want to have the wrist underneath the shoulder, the knee underneath the hip on the ground, and we're going to brace our midsection and gently push the floor away from you using the serratus anterior muscle, which is on the bottom of your chest. Think about pushing your shoulder blades down and forward on your rib cage, and that's going to be the way that you'll be able to execute this the best. As you're going through this, it is important to note that the serratus anterior ties in directly to the external oblique, which also works with the same side glute min complex. All of these work together through one fascial system and allow us to be able to stabilize ourselves and be able to resist torsion or twisting motion in through the midsection. In this position, the first step to learning the bird dog is to learn how to lift one hand off the ground and not move. I'm not going to go much deeper into the bird dog progression because you can find that video over on the HV Training YouTube channel, which will take you through all of the different variations and talk about how and why we actually want to build core strength. What I am going to tell you here is that it is incredibly important for you to understand how and why the whole body, essentially everything between the neck, the elbows, and the knees tie together to create a core. This is the resistance of rotation, the production of force, which is going to be transferred through the hips or through the shoulders to allow the athlete to move. When you're thinking about building core training for your athletes, we can and should actually incorporate them through the entire training session. One of the best examples of this is going to be skipping or jumping. A lot of cyclists, this is going to be foreign, yet so many of them are going to box jumps, and all we hear when they go for box jumps is as they land super hard because they're not using their core to brace and set the, <laughs> the midsection to take that force. This leads to undue stress on the knee, the joints of the spine, as well as the hips, and can cause back pain, neck pain, knee pain, ankle pain, and a whole other bevy host of different issues. My apologies for scaring you there, but that really is what you hear from many cyclists in the gym when they're trying to go through box jumps. In fact, box jumps can and should be used as a part of an appropriate year-round strength training program for a cyclist and triathlete once they've gone through the anatomical adaptation. These can be used in the hypertrophy or max strength time of year as they go through that cycle. However, before we get to that, we need to teach the athlete how to brace their midsection to be able to dissipate the forces as they come in and land softly. This can be done starting with the crocodile breathing exercise to teach the athlete awareness of when they are tensing their neck or their lower back or their hamstrings for their breathing, and then progressing to the shielded breath exercise, both of which you can find over on the HV Training YouTube channel with great details as to how to execute these properly. Now these two exercises are at the very core, pun intended, of your core training. As we mentioned earlier, a good diaphragmatic breath and getting 360 degree expansion through your rib cage as well as through your midsection is going to allow the diaphragm to essentially do an internal massage of the psoas, one of those hip flexor muscles that often get accused of causing back pain. Why is this important? Because while the diaphragm is moving, other muscles have to relax, not just the psoas. You're going to have the intercostals, as well as the stress from the quadratus lumborum and the erector spinae are going to change and allow them to be returned to a little bit of a better resting length. 
Now, of course, this is also going to have to coincide with some type of strengthening through the range of motion using the right muscles in the correct joint positions. This is why technique and understanding what our outcomes from strength training for cyclists and triathletes is so important. Simply heading to the gym and doing some bench press, doing some rows, and not having the understanding of what you're looking to get out of it is not going to allow your athlete or yourself to see the results you want and deserve out of your strength training for cycling and triathlon performance. Not into for performance? Yes, you are, actually. You're looking to improve your ability to ride on your bike more comfortably and less pain. That, in and of itself, is the ultimate performance, the performance of an activity for a lifestyle that you enjoy and would like to do for longer periods of time. Let's take a pause here for just a moment to allow some of you to take a break, or maybe it's going to wait until the second half of your commute to listen to the rest of this podcast episode. The take-home for the first part here, breathing is absolutely important. Learning how to brace your midsection, keep great posture, and tie together all of the muscles between the neck, the elbow, and the knee is what's going to allow us to build true core performance and to allow you to begin to see performance advancements and decreases in pain and discomfort on the bike. Let's take that break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about a couple small variations you can use in your training instead of jumping on the Bozu ball, the Indo board, or any other type of unstable surface. Want to learn more? Check out humanvortextraining.com for more on this topic from Coach Brody and today's guest. All right, so we've got it covered. We understand now that it is important to get us to be able to breathe better because that will allow some muscles to relax. We do need to go through strength through range of motion uh, that we have in order to get some of those muscles to begin to work a little bit better. But what are some other things that we can and should be doing with our athletes to allow them to get more out of their strength training and to truly train their core? Well, one of my favorites is going to be starting or ending the session with what's called a global challenge to the athlete's ability to produce tension through the full body to be able to handle a task. Now, these may look simple or sound simple, but they are far more challenging than you may realize. The first is called a farmer's carry. A farmer's carry is where you have two weights of equal amounts in either of your hands. Your job is to keep your ribs down, chin tucked, and to squeeze the handles hard while you keep your shoulder blades back and down, midsection braced, and you walk for a given period of time or distance. This, again, sounds incredibly simple, but to do it properly is extremely difficult and takes a lot of concentration and ability to fire different areas of your muscle all at the same time. In fact, when I worked at CrossFit, I had a number of athletes who were very strong in squats and bench press, but just couldn't get the farmer carry properly. And they didn't care to learn how to do it properly. They just wanted to carry the heaviest weights that they could, shoulders slouching forward, rounding their back, walking fast, and then asking me, why does my neck and my back hurt afterward? This is not what we want for our cyclists and triathletes. We want to start with light weights on a scale of 1 to 10, being a 5 or 6, that allow the athlete to learn the different joint positions, as well as the different places for them to be able to squeeze the handle and keep nice, firm midsection braced just enough to allow them to walk. This farmer carry is a fantastic exercise to begin to introduce the concept, and then you pull back from there, allowing the athlete to realize they have a little bit more to go, there's a challenge out there, and the goal is not to carry heavier weights shorter times, but to carry a lighter weight for longer periods of time. 
We're talking about carrying for 45 to 60 seconds while keeping appropriate bracing, shoulder blades back, chin tucked, and the ability to walk at a regular to medium speed as they go through this movement. Now, what if you don't have the weights or your athletes are allergic to the weight room because they still haven't bought into that side of things? How would you get this message across? One of my favorites is going to be the front plank arm march or the front plank reach. Again, if you head on over to the Human Vortex Training YouTube channel, you'll be able to find this exercise, which looks very easy, but is extremely challenging to do properly, as you'll notice with the foam roller on my back as I demonstrate the exercise. To produce the full body tension, not bending the knees, not pushing the butt up into the air, not bending the elbows, is extremely challenging and can allow your athlete to learn the co-contraction and positioning that they need in order to produce power, strength, and stability on the bike. Notice there is no unstable surface here. We are trying to teach the athlete to be stable as opposed to fight against an unstable surface. Of course, there's many different ways that you can work a problem. However, in my nearly two and a half decades in the fitness industry, I can tell you that putting an athlete onto an unstable surface is just going to make a lot of their problems even worse. Again, as with episode one of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete podcast, it depends, and there are always going to be exceptions, but I would venture to, to guess and even gamble that your athlete will gain far more and move forward much quicker by learning how to produce the stability themselves as opposed to just simply slapping them onto an unstable surface. Of course, your athletes aren't probably not going to buy into this at the beginning because it's cool or I saw this on Instagram. This is where you need to educate them and help them be able to understand what exactly it is they really need out of their time strength training. We want to make the most out of every minute that they're in the weight room because we need to be out on our bikes or running or swimming the appropriate amounts each week in order for us to be able to train the conditioning side to be able to go through and perform in our sports. What this means is that many of us are going to have to look at ways that we can get more out of our strength training exercise regimen and allow our athletes to progress to a further degree. Now, we're not gonna to go too into the details here as there are a number of resources available to you here from Human Vortex Training that will help you do this, including, but not limited to, the Strength Training for Cyclist Certification, the Strength Training for Cycling Success and Strength Training for Triathlon Success courses on Training Peaks, as well as the home strength training programs that I have up on the Human Vortex Training website. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, we're just gonna put in a bunch of core exercises to our, our athletes' strength training and that'll take care of it. Well, we need to be careful. There are still the fundamental five plus one, push, pull, squat, hinge, press, and then rotary stability, which we're working on here and we're talking about, that need to be addressed throughout the strength training program year round. This means for many of your athletes in the high volume time, which this podcast is being posted in here in June, you're not gonna be able to get your athlete to go through all five plus one of these movements in every session, nor should you ever. At most, you'll have one, maybe two sessions a week with weights or higher resistance that you're going to be able to get your athlete to do. So what is a coach to do? Well, simply put, we can utilize the positioning of the body to allow us to create the rotary stability and tension that we need in order to teach our athletes how to have a stronger, more resilient, and better tied together core. So again, as we talked about, core is all the muscles between the neck, the elbows, and the knees. 
What this looks like in practice is that as we go through our strength training program, we will look for opportunities to insert or add a little bit of core stability as we go through our exercises. To be clear, core stability does not mean, again, does not mean putting them onto a stability ball, onto a bozu ball, or an unstable surface. Please do not do that. What it does mean is lowering the weight and having the athlete, when appropriate, go through a movement for the upper body in a half kneeling position where one leg is down, the knee is on the ground with the toes of that leg dug into the ground so that they can fire their glutes and keep their ribs down and chin tucked. For many motions such as rowing or pressing or pulling, this is going to create a very, very hard environment in which that athlete may need to lower the weight quite a bit below what they would normally do for their bipedal or normal standing position for this movement. However, utilizing the half kneeling position can be a great way to add core control and build true core strength. You're teaching the athlete to produce stiffness proximally, to stabilize the spine, and to lock the rib cage and pelvis together while they get movement from the elbow, the shoulder, or the hip and the knee. This is a fantastically simple solution that is not easy. Simple, but not easy. That's what we're looking for. The next challenge will be getting the athlete to understand that they need to lower the weight and think differently about the technique because they have to produce that core stability as they go through the movement. For an upper body positioning, there are a bunch of different variations that we won't go into today because verbally is not quite the best way to teach them. But essentially, we would be looking to do a unilateral or one-sided movement such as a one-arm dumbbell bench press, a one-arm lat pull-down, a one-arm row, or many other things. These variations are covered in detail in this Strength Training for Cycling certification course, and you'll learn the different progressions that you can use in order to allow your athlete to move forward and become stronger. Now, again, these are simple but are not easy. A lot of the co-contraction, a lot of the positioning is going to be a challenge for most of your cyclists. Not to mention the hit to the ego when they need to half the weight or more. So they're using 50% or less of the weight that they could do if they had both feet planted on the ground or over on the pegs. A lot of this comes from teaching our athletes to understand the process and enjoy that process as they get stronger. Getting stronger, in fact, does not need heavy weights for most cyclists and triathletes at the beginning. There are some professional athletes that I've had that don't use any weights at all for the first 60 to 90 days. Case in point, the 60-day home body weight strength training for cyclists program, the athletes saw fantastic results and many of them were extremely surprised as to how hard the movements were to do properly when we changed just a couple of those variables. If you'd like to try this program for yourself, you're going to have to wait for the fall because we'll open it only in September, October, and it will be only open for a couple of months, and then we'll close again. The 60-day home body weight program is pretty much guaranteed to boost your 30-second power output for cyclists, as well as to allow you to see better, more repeatable efforts on the bike. Now, some people who finish the program say, hey, my speed's up, but my power's not. What's up with that? The reason this happens is because we've allowed the body to become more efficient. Most of these athletes tend to be more advanced riders who just don't have the ability to create that core stability in order to get motion distally, 
Again, proximal stiffness creates distal motion. They are so unstable at their core, despite being able to plank for 45 minutes, that's what one of them told me, and able to do side planks for 17 minutes on one side and 14 minutes on the other, they were not able to produce the stiffness and co-contraction necessary to put out their power for long periods of time. Now, some of you may say, well, they're going faster, but at the same power, is that really an advancement? The answer is absolutely. What that means is that we've helped the athlete to become more economical or more efficient in how they move on the bike. So perhaps from a energy standpoint, from a metabolic standpoint, they are reaching the upper ends and they need a more dialed in or different conditioning approach to allow them to produce more power. What we've done is allow them to produce more force down to the pedals to allow them to get more speed. This may not always make sense, but it is what it is in practice. Some of you who are more technical or understand the biomechanics can explain it a little bit more. Others who have training as biomolecular scientists may be able to tell us what's going on at that level. But the bottom line is an increase in performance does not necessarily need to or must correlate with an increase in power. By making you more efficient or more economical, we can make you a stronger, fitter, faster rider at less of an energy cost. And after all, we're in an endurance sport. So the person who arrives to the end of the race fresher and having expended less energy is going to have a higher likelihood of winning should they have the tactics that they need or the understanding of what needs to go on and what they need to make occur in order to put themselves on the top step of that podium. If your athlete isn't interested in the top step of the podium, they're not a competitive athlete, that's totally cool. It's an easier sell for you as a coach. How would you like to finish your rides feeling fresher and able to go out and do more the next ride without feeling totally drained or having these aches and pains the next day? Non-competitive riders, non-competitive triathletes, tend to buy in a little bit faster for what we've talked about here today about true core training. They're more interested in finishing their training or their events feeling better and having a shorter road to recovery as opposed to having to go through that one to two weeks that every quote unquote every triathlete has to go through after their half Ironman or Ironman. Actually, you don't have to and most of the professionals don't need to take two weeks off because they've trained themselves to be able to put out that power and to be able to maintain that effort for long periods of time and gotten their joints into better positions to be able to go out and perform. Let's recap what we've covered to this point here. Core training is the ability to produce stiffness at the spine and allow the ribcage and pelvis to lock together. Core training must involve all of the muscles between the neck, the elbows, and the knees in order to be true core training. Producing stiffness at the midsection to allow you to lock together the ribcage and pelvis is absolutely instrumental in allowing you to produce power and to produce a stronger impulse down to the limbs and get movement from the shoulders, the hips, the knees, the ankles. As you go through your training, one of the number one things we can look at in order to allow our athletes to progress is to start them off with breathing. Crocodile breathing to get them to learn how to breathe properly to relax some muscles that tend to be overused and to get them into better postures and positions. From there, we can progress them into a shielded breath, allowing them to learn how to produce tension or bracing through the entire 360 degree midsection while keeping proper posture and position of the different joints and muscles in the body to allow them to be set up for better performance. Number three, when it comes to actually learning how to do core, 
the first thing we want to do is teach the athlete how to be stable themselves. An example of such exercise that we spoke about today is the front plank reach, where the athlete needs to learn how to fire all of the muscles between the neck, the elbows, and the knees in order to resist movement through the hips or the back inappropriately as they lift the hand up to reach ahead. Again, simple but not easy. A global challenge that we said we can use is a farmer's carry. Again, I must stress that this should not be a heavy weight to start. We want an RPE or perceived exertion of a five or a six. We are teaching the athlete to understand great posture, good joint positions, and to begin to comprehend how complex full body tension is in order to get the core, again, everything between the neck, the elbows, and the knees to remain stable as they go through motion at the hips or the shoulders. The farmer's carry is done with equal weights. They should be the same kind, so two dumbbells or two kettlebells. As they walk, they should keep the shoulder blades back and down, ribs down, chin tucked, abs appropriately braced all around the 360 degrees. This is why you need the shielded breath beforehand, and they should be able to walk in a nice upright posture keeping their chin tucked and good technique as they walk forward. Their shoulders should not slouch. They should not have any back pain, hip pain, knee pain, or foot pain as they go through. Lastly, their elbows should be straight and not bent. Next, we spoke today about the bird dog exercise and its many progressions and how many cyclist triathletes, their coaches, and personal trainers are butchering the movement in that they're not maintaining a stable spine and a stiff 360-degree core Again, core is everything between the neck, the elbows, and the knees to allow them to maintain nice and stable while they get movement from the shoulder and the hip. The progression for that, as we said, is over on the HV Training YouTube channel under the Bird Dog Progression video, which you can watch. Start your athletes off at the basics, and you will be amazed as to how many of your quote-unquote advanced Athletes cannot execute a simple level one bird dog, which is just lifting the hand off the ground or just moving the leg back. Either they're using the wrong muscles or their rib cage and pelvis are separating from one another or both occur. Teach your athletes to master the fundamentals. This is where performance is gained. This is where mastery is built. Mastering the fundamentals is simple, but it is not easy. This pertains to the last part of what we spoke about today, and that is going into a half kneeling position or to a semi-supported position for your fundamental five plus one movements. I must stress, the athletes must first learn to be able to move properly and produce great core stability. Again, core is everything between your neck, your elbows, and your knees. You should be so sick and tired of me saying that, that now you're getting angry and you want to punch the radio or throw your phone out the window. But you have to repeat it this many times with your athletes to get it through. They need to hear it between seven and 14 times for it to begin to enter into their brain. Only then will they possibly maybe begin to process what you're teaching them and telling them. As you go through, start with the fundamental five plus one, push, pull, squat, hinge, press, and rotary stability. Yes, rotary stability involves core strength, but as we've already given a few examples of the farmer carry, the front plank reach, as well as going through the bird dog, you have the basic tools that you need in order to build a powerful strength training program for yourself or for your athletes. Don't skip the breathing. This is a foundational movement of all human performance and abilities at any level. Crocodile breathing first. Once you master that, you can move on to shielded breath. Follow the order and you will have success. 
You can have a recipe for an awesome fudge cake, but if you don't follow the recipe, it can come out a massive dud and taste awful. And that leaves us to our last lesson on core training for cyclists and triathletes and what it really should be. Do not be in a rush to take your athletes into a half kneeling or half or partially supported position just because. Your athletes and your clients must first learn how to produce tension in a stable position. This means they're doing regular squats. This means that they're doing some type of deadlift motion. They could be a kettlebell swing if it's appropriate for them. This means that they're going to learn a basic seated press. We were giving them as much of an advantage to learn how to execute the movement as possible. Seated rows. You get the idea. Don't be in such a rush to push your athletes into these rotary stability positions or the half kneeling just because, oh, well, it's June or July, so now we're going to go half kneeling. No. Stick with what the athlete needs. There are many different variations of squats, deadlifts, presses, pushes, and pulls that you can and should be utilizing that will help your athlete begin to learn and execute and practice and move towards mastery with producing proximal stiffness to get distal motion. Don't rush the process. Meet each athlete where they are. Treat each session as an individual session and understand the forest for the trees. Know where the athlete is intending to go, know where they're headed right now, and understand what you know and what you don't know, and respect that boundary. If you're unsure what to do, go back to the basics. The simple answer, nine times out of 10, is the best answer. That's it for today's podcast. I hope you found this to be useful and informational, and it will help you be able to train your athletes or yourself to see better strength, better fitness, and better progression in their swim, bike, and run. Please make sure you subscribe, give us a review, and I'm looking forward to having you again next week on the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. Remember, till next time, train smarter, not harder, because it is all about you. That's it for this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast with world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Don't miss an episode. Hit that subscribe button and give us a review. For more exclusive content, visit humanvortextraining.com or get the latest expert videos from Coach Brody on the HVT YouTube channel at HB Training. Until next time, Remember to train smarter, not harder, because it is all about you.